Hello, I'm Nicole Bond and welcome to our second part of a look into resilience for the horticulture industry. And in fact, even though it's for the horticulture industry, there's a lot of lessons for all parts of agriculture. I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge our episode sponsor, Growcom. Growcom is the peak industry body for commercial horticulture in Queensland. Horticulture is a production of uh, fruit, vegetables, nuts, mushrooms and herbs. And in Queensland alone, there are 126 different types of horticulture commodities grown. It is a vibrant primary production industry with a very bright future ahead. So, Richard Shannon, what is your question? The question I'd love you to look into is... Is there any way for commercial horticulture growers in Queensland to ensure their business is resilient? We're now going to dive into the second part. We heard from some growers dealing with natural disasters. It became quite obvious to me with homes that I could see burning down in front of me and people running out of burning homes that it was, it was um, you know, a fire like no other. And we also heard that these types of weather patterns are only going to become more intense. The number of cyclones doesn't seem to have increased, but the intensity or the category of the ones we do get seems to have increased. So how do we start to build resilience? For many of us, we start with ourselves. Rural Aid is an organisation dedicated to improving the mental health outcomes for rural Australians. They often have multi-tiered roles in natural disasters – Lauren Stracy is their national manager for mental health and well-being. At some point, most of us will experience some kind of trauma, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the thing that undoes us. We know a lot about trauma these days, and while there might be impact for a period of time, um, there's also a, a lot of, I guess, opportunity for people to grow after a traumatic experience as well. And I think for farmers and, and their families, the impact of climate change and the way that our environment is Um, changing and the the intensity of that is making um, farmers and farming families more likely to experience some kind of trauma um, related to the environment through their experience of working the land. So is what you're saying that the most normal trauma that a primary producer has or is experienced to is, is basically natural disaster like a cyclone or a flood or a fire or a severe drought? Look, I, I wouldn't want to be so prescriptive because I think the, what people experience in life can be um, at times traumatic. So it could be the breakdown of family relationships. It could be an experience of an accident on a farm um, or it could be the impact of a natural disaster. And it really depends on where the person is and what their experience is at the time um, as to how they will experience that particular incident that might have happened. So one person's experience of a life event might be quite different to another person. Okay, so let's though turn the lens to those the, the natural disaster situation. Uh, what are you experiencing with your work in rural aid? Uh, because it's an organisation who comes in and, and assists after disasters. Yeah, so we actually work across the whole spectrum of the disaster space. So we look at preparedness, we look at working in that sort of intensity after a disaster might have happened and then we also work in the recovery phase as well. And so I guess what we're seeing at Rural Aid is a range of experiences of um, natural disasters. So we've most recently had the mouth plague, we had the floods up in Taree, we've had the experiences of fires. A lot of different impacts as a result of that. So, you know, the intensity of a fire, um, there's an intense build-up then there's the fire and then there's kind of the aftermath of that. 
there was, well, and there still is the ongoing impact of drought in many areas of Australia, it's prolonged. And so that's kind of, there's, there's no clear time periods between the start and end. So it's quite a different impact to farmers and farming families in terms of the way they're experiencing those kind of natural disasters. And what do you tend to see? How does it play out um, for primary producers? I think the, the, the experience can be really unique to the experience of the disaster itself. So, But what we're seeing definitely is the um, cumulative impact of those disasters. So the intensity of, say, the, the floods, for example, they had um, this really intense time period. And what you'd have is the instant impact of that. So the, the distress of having that kind of the floods come through their farms. But then there's also the recovery of that as well. So they're needing to kind of look at what the primary needs are. How do they kind of um, look at solutions? How do they make sure that they're ensuring they have all of the things that they need to be able to be safe and stable um, in the aftermath of that? And then following on from that, it's the next phases of, you know, how do I recover from this financially? How do I ensure that um, I'm able to start earning an income again and getting back on track in terms of my actual financial stability as well. It's really multifaceted um, in the way that people are having to recover. They're needing to have multiple pathways to be able to ensure that they're able to be stable and, and um, continue to thrive. And as we've spoken to a number of different producers in this particular episode of the podcast, what sometimes happens to them is in that recovery phase, they're hit by another or different natural disaster. Can you tell me about the compounding um, impact on resilience when, when, when you get through one disaster and then are faced with another? around the impacts of multiple disasters is really starting to come um, to light now. And so what we're seeing now is that multiple um, disasters have a a few different um, pathways in terms of their cumulative impact. So there's the impact of the feeling of safety for the individuals. So can I actually trust my sense of safety in my home and in, in my environment? And then there's also the theories around this sort of persistent social and economic stresses. So You know, the way that um, a disaster might impact family relationships, the way that it impacts economic safety, those two things combined um, have a cumulative impact as well. And then there's that kind of more time critical, I guess, um, impact of um, a disaster in terms of the erosion of a person's resilience. So if you kind of, if you're looking at the way that people kind of adapt to a disaster, Usually they have this alarm stage where they're really activated in their fight-flight space. And then we go into that resistance stage where the person's starting to be able to begin to repair after being exposed to some sort of crisis. Um, But they're still very much on high alert. And so if people are kind of staying in that resistance phase and not getting to repair and then go back to homeostasis or return to their kind of safety, normal space and another disaster hits, you end up having um, people who are constantly on high alert, which can lead to exhaustion. And that's the part that's really, um, really concerning, I guess, in terms of people's mental health. Because if you don't have a chance to kind of repair, settle, soothe, your cumulative impact means that you're just kind of getting chipped away at in terms of your resilience and not able to kind of come back to that nice stabilised piece of um, well-being. So what can be done and and whose responsibility is it? I mean, let's start with the individual. Is there something that, that they need to be cognizant of before they get themselves in this situation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is preparedness. 
both physically and, and emotionally as well. So I think the physical preparedness space is something that we're hearing a lot more about. But the psychological or emotional preparedness is probably something that's really just starting to be talked about. One of the things that we know is that, you know, when people are under stress, they're more likely to make last minute changes to their plans because people start to get into that panic stage and they start to try and work out, you know, what's the solution, what's the solution. So if we can prepare physically, psychologically and emotionally before a disaster, we're more likely to be able to stick to the plan that we've made and we're more likely to be able to really, I guess, be more grounded in our responses when um, a stressor comes along like a disaster. What about um, the the support people? You know, often farms are either family farms or, or they are, you know, small companies. What do people within that sort of farming unit need to keep their eyes peeled for for each other? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the things that we know is that the most protective factor in all of these kind of experiences of trauma and disaster are our social relationships. So it's really, I guess, important to be looking out for opportunities to soothe yourself. And so looking at how do I kind of actually make or take steps to kind of look at um, how I regulate my own emotional well-being and connect with people that I care about because those are often the things that go first. And the more that we can kind of prioritise looking after ourselves, prioritise leisure, prioritise connection, the more likely we're able to have like a, a nice, stable family system. And the more stable and well our families are, the more likely we're able to recover from those kind of instances. So it's almost like when you, you know, you, you talk about if we go on an aeroplane and I know that no one's going on aeroplanes at the moment, but, you know, it's always about putting your mask on first. Um, it's the same sort of thing with your mental health. So um, well kids um, come from um, families that are well, farms that are well have well families. It's all about that sort of systems approach of looking at, you know, how do we look after ourselves and strengthen ourselves by looking at um, developing skills in self-soothing and connecting to be able to support, I guess, a, a level of, of stabilisation really, I guess, um, so that we can actually um, be able to respond rather than be reactive when we're in a stress situation. Uh, what about external to the farm? What about um, governments? What about uh, charities? What about uh, broader communities? What other things could be done or, or how could things be dealt with differently after and during natural disasters that would assist that emotional resilience, particularly in a situation where there's one natural disaster followed by a recovery period, potentially followed by another disaster? Where consultation and collaboration are really important. I think when we're looking at um, the responses to how do we sort of help a community recover from a disaster, what we really need to be doing is ensuring that our any actions that are taken are done with consultation with the community because the more that we can bring the community together and the more that we can target our responses to what the needs are for that particular community, the more likely that the community will be able to um, be resilient and recover because it, it's almost it's all about having skin in the game. The more that a community is able to talk, bond, relate to each other and then develop things from the ground up that are actually important to them and, and what their actual needs are, the more likely they're going to be able to have a sense of ownership and, I guess, a, a sense of autonomy and, and hope. Um, and that's really what you need to be building into communities after a disaster 
is a sense that, you know, they've been able to get through this, that they're able to pull together, that they're able to kind of look at what their skills and strengths are and build a sense of hope for, you know, after this. Although we've had this terrible experience, that there's some sense of hope as to where they're going next. What about from a government perspective? Is there more that um, government should be doing? Is there enough focus on... Um, you know, emotional resilience or or that kind of, you know, as opposed to financial resilience? I think that's a really interesting question because I think one of the things that we, especially in in the rural communities, is there still is quite a significant amount of help-seeking stigma. Um, And I don't think that that is necessarily different when it's been a disaster. And so I think one of the things that the literature is really showing is that the input in the psychological mental health space in the recovery is highly predictive of the recovery of a community. So if we were able to focus a lot of messaging around psychological preparedness um, around this as much as your physical preparedness, and if we could look at psychological recovery messaging as much as, you know, what do you need to do in terms of practicalities, I think we could actually do a lot in terms of changing and shifting the conversation around what you need to be doing to be able to help seek. So I guess the the thing to be thinking about, I, I think, is that, you know, the normalisation of being able to connect in with people like our rural aid mental health team. We have, you know, these, these wonderful counsellors who can do all sorts of things to support um, the recovery of people. And it doesn't have to be at the point where people are really struggling. It can be in that kind of middle ground where it's, you know, you just might be a bit wobbly. You're noticing a few symptoms and you're not quite sure where to go. If we could support conversations through our government, through our media, through our communities, that it's actually really beneficial, just as if you would be going to the physio if you had a bit of a dodgy ankle, that you actually seek out a bit of support earlier to be able to look after yourself to be able to kind of thrive more effectively. I think that kind of messaging would be really useful in our communities and our wider conversation around mental health in Australia. One of the solutions we heard from climate scientist Richard Eckhart in the last episode was how more research and development into what crops are grown where, with mind to even relocate growing hubs to other regions of Australia. Plants have a fairly limited inbuilt ability to handle temperature ranges. And so, you know, while we can adjust what we think is a heat, heat event based on a new baseline, a mango tree still has the same internal requirement. And so there's, there's two issues there. The one is the extreme heat that can cause fruit burn or can cause uh, longer term damage to particularly perennial horticulture, where you've got trees that take 10 to 12 years before they are really productive. The second one, probably for northern Australia, is the southward movement and the intensification of cyclones that we've seen. The number of cyclones doesn't seem to have increased, but the intensity or the category of the ones we do get seems to have increased. And so that has quite a material impact on how we design perennial horticulture in particular, trees that that you know are going to take another 10 years to recover. And so that has less of an impact on annual horticulture where you can choose to plant cauliflower or you can recover from a lost cauliflower crop as a result of a cyclone or a heat wave event. But if you have perennial trees that might be, you know, macadamia nuts or or mangoes, it's going to take your whole generation to get those back up and productive again. 
You may remember Sandy Groves from our previous episode. She's a fruit grower from central Queensland who, after a number of natural disasters, came up with a terrific disaster plan and preventative measures together with her family. However, I was curious to know what she thought about horticulture's access to government assistance. We don't really think that government assistance is the way to go. I'm not saying we shouldn't have government assistance. I think government assistance is essential when, when, when a really big disaster happens. But I think people have to start looking after themselves. I, don't, I, I think it would be wrong for farmers to become dependent on government assistance. There, is, there are some areas that, that I think government assistance is great and the areas such as at the moment they have been offering assistance to try and drought-proof your farm. I don't think that you can ever drought-proof it, but by offering assistance in putting down additional bores or desilting dams or even building dams, things like that, I think is, is a great way of doing it so that farmers can look after themselves. I don't think we I don't think any farmers want handouts from the government, but it is useful to have help in making us more resilient, making us more resistant to to these different things. I think it's also good if the government can do a little bit more research and also do put in a little bit more infrastructure for providing water for those farmers that don't have groundwater that they can access themselves. The National Recovery and Resiliency Agency was established by Prime Minister Scott Morrison in response to recommendations from the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements. Shane Stone is the Coordinator General of the agency. This historic move means there is a single enduring national agency that will drive Australia's capability to be better prepared for natural disasters and drought and recover from all hazards. From our origins after the 2019 North Queensland monsoonal trough, the principle of locally led, locally understood, locally implemented has guided all of our work. We have staff in every Australian state and territory, and this includes our recovery support officers, or RSOs as we call them, who operate from their agency vehicles. They work closely with their local councils and other community leaders, government agencies and industry bodies. Prime Minister Morrison calls them our boots on the ground and hearts at the table. And they make sure people get the information they need and direct them to the right help and support for their particular situation. Currently, there are funding models in place to assist primary producers and communities through the Australian Federal Government's Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. But is this a long-term solution? Should the onus be on farmers to be better prepared for natural disasters, considering that we now know they're going to be more severe in the future? Bruce Scott is one of Shane Stone's boots on the ground with the National Recovery and Resilience Agency. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that climate change is um, on everyone's lips. And just you know, taking into consideration some of the narrative from the Insurance Council of Australia that we... Um, you know, we currently spend and the dollars put towards natural disasters. We spend 97% of our money in recovery and about 3% in, in resilience or being prepared. And there's no doubt that, that the Royal Commission identified that that needed to change, that we need to not just 
tip money towards recovery, but to invest in, in resilience or preparedness so that that recovery time is not only shorter for the communities affected so they can get back on their feet quickly, business continuity continues, effects of a natural disaster are absorbed quite quickly, businesses are up and running and uh, back to normal happens. So I, I think that that's, that's a good thing personally and I think it's a good it's accepted as being a good thing by, by the people that care. So I, I'm looking forward to that change. Yet the other thing is too is that um, we really need to to have um, that capability in our own backyard. And and resilience and recovery, those two factors really depend on the macro issues and the micro issues. So the macro issues are things that you know, communities normally can't affect except for you know, letting the government know that there's a need through their local government and other mechanisms. But there's also the things that we can do as people, as part of a community and, and doing the right thing in our own backyard, making sure our own environment is safe for our own family but also our neighbours and making sure that we, we give time to our community through volunteerism and making sure that, that we're well resourced. And the other part of that, your question was, well, my answer to your question was around our changing climate and there's no doubt you know, the peer-reviewed science and what we're starting to see you know, in the last few years is the frequency and the severity of, of weather patterns is, is much more having much more effect on communities and lives. In some cases, loss of life, which is tragic, and, and quite often the loss of volunteers that are trying to make people's lives safer, which is even a greater tragedy. But climate change is a reality, so we need to be better prepared to manage that. You know, cyclone frequency and severe weather frequency is, is forecast to increase. And now in some of those um, East Coast lows that we witness uh, in, in um, Victoria, New South Wales and southern part of Queensland are about very severe. And the recent flooding in New South Wales is a testament to, to some of these rain depressions that come through. But also we've seen that um, unprecedented monsoon trough that hit northwestern Queensland, all the, all, the, really all the top end of Queensland, that event affected 39 local governments. But... More particularly, that monsoon trough really affected 14 LGAs across the top end of Queensland and um, the loss of uh, livestock, the loss of livelihoods, the impact on the community just shows how, how intense some of these systems are. And then you go south um, of that area into the um, areas that are affected by the, the black summer bushfires and you know, the intensity of those fires. Do you think primary producers expect the government to prop them up or do you think they're coming to realise that they need to be more proactive in line with the direction the agency is headed? I, th I think there's that people do need to be more proactive. You know, a lot of the government is thinking around some of their programs that they're developing is encouraging people to you know, understand the weather better, to, um, to be, be better understanding of their financial position, have some knowledge in business acumen, um, understanding risk better. Um, so there's there some of the things that government would encourage people to to get a better understanding of in their own, so, so their capability is better and stronger and understanding of their vulnerability. The other thing is that you know, the government has proven that it, it is there for agriculture um, when something badly goes wrong and has been, our, our remit is, is a response the social response to drought, not so much treating drought as a natural disaster. So you know, getting back to the, the climate variability we're going to experience through climate change, um, whilst I talked about the severity of storms and, and weather patterns, and the severity of drought, there, there could be longer periods and more severe droughts, and we're talking now about about um, droughts being you know, 
more suddenly. So there's no, there's no doubt the government thinking about these things uh, and thinking about what their response measures are. And, you know, the Rural Financial Counselling Service has been there not only for people in agriculture but for all agricultural business, not only for people in, in um, you know, sheep and cattle industry but also you know, all agricultural businesses. So that, that capability to, to help people in their times of need is going to continue. The Rural Financial Counselling Service has come across to the National Recovery and Resilience Agency as part of its... Um, responsibility. So the, the government's not walking away from any way that, from its current responsibilities and it's looking very, very closely how it can help people to be to be able to withstand those shocks. And that may be through you know, grants and monetary contributions when things go wrong, but also through programs that um, help people to be naturally better prepared and more able to withstand those shocks. Is there enough investment in R&D to help growers be, have more resilient systems or better, you know, nets or technology that'll stand up to cyclone proofing, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is that the way forward for resilience in agriculture? Well, there's, there's no doubt that some of the major universities have been involved, you know, in, in that type of research and, and also the CSIRO. So there's work already being done uh, and also you know, part of our, one of our partners is um, – the Australian Climate Services and uh, the Australian Institute of Disaster Resilience. So there's there's a number of organisations that that you know that are discussing these things all the time. I think there'll be a you know it'll be ongoing the research into into how we adapt to a change in climate. And I think that with the uh, with the drought hubs that are being you know, developed, uh, there's certainly um, an appetite to to put some resilience hubs in parts of Australia. So, you know, through that, that learning and, and repository for, um, for information, you know, that, that then can become readily available to, to primary producers, um, small business, you know, all, the, all the people that are, are affected by these, these systems, there's no doubt that the research is happening. And whether there needs to be more, uh, I'd have to take that on notice, Nicole, because I'm, you know, I'm not intimately aware of, of all the research, but a lot of the universities are really shifting their, um, their focus. And even to the point where I was at um, Nathan Campus at Griffith University this week, uh, looking at you know, modelling and what the response would look like for a major weather event in the Brisbane Valley, and looking at how that would affect you know, agriculture, you know, displaced people, you know, being you know, having the capability to repair after a major event, something similar to you know, it's 10 years since we had the 2010 flooding in Brisbane, uh, how you manage that with in the current COVID environment. Um, so that you know, in, in that Brisbane Valley, it's a rich area for you know, small crops, small business, big business, feed lots of more intensive agriculture. So you know, there's a mix of of business that that agricultural base either supplies to agricultural or agricultural businesses that are that lie in that area. And it's uh, you know, it's it's pleasing to see that the Queensland Reconstruction Authority, the Queensland Government, Queensland Fire Emergency Services, Inspector General of Emergency Management, and you know, those type of people, plus all the state agencies are really thinking about and modelling how that recovery would look like if we had a major event such as 2010. And so that's a really good point. I'm going to jump in on the self-reliance. So what would you say to a vegetable grower in the Lockyer Valley who thought, well, um, I'm just going to keep doing everything the way I always have done and it's up to the taxpayer to bail me out when it goes wrong because I'm a food producer and that makes me more important? You know, this is me 
talking personally, Nicole, you know, I think that, that, that anyone that's not thinking about the long term are probably not going to survive in agriculture. But you know, for, for government, I, I, I think there's any, um, I, I think there's an appetite to help people that try to help themselves first. Now, that's not, not anywhere that I'm aware of, and that's probably more of a, a, a question for the for the minister. You know, your point around, you know, how much can the taxpayer keep throwing towards people that don't want to change what they do? Well, you know, that's probably going to be an answer for the, the voting public in the long term, and and, and on policies in the government. Agriculture is not like not unlike any other business. You know, whilst it's every other business is, is exposed to droughts uh, because of the lack of income in agriculture. Uh, it's exposed to commodity downturns, which agriculture is, is exposed to, but that flows on to small businesses and the economy of small towns and even larger towns when those exports are value-added and are, are exported. Growcom promotes practices that are proactive to get in front of government regulation and boost social licence. In terms of advocacy and service, Growcom covers a wide spectrum of issues that growers face, from workplace relations and employment practices to chemical use and efficient application systems. In an age where consumers have more and more to say about how they source food based on sustainable and ethical farming systems, Growcom strives to expand uptake of the best management practices and provide a voice for growers to support what they do best. And of course, that is sustainably grow fresh fruit, vegetable, nut and herb produce. Thanks for sponsoring this episode, Growcom. So we've heard from mental health organisations, the federal government bodies responsible for allocating funding and assistance following disasters, the growers themselves and climate experts. But what about the bodies representing the growers? Hello. Hey, Lena, it's Nicole. How are you? Growcom is the peak industry body for commercial horticulture in Queensland. So my name is Lena Nutz and I work for Growcom where I do projects uh, around water quality, climate and natural disasters. As an industry body, um, how does Growcom view uh, the need for growers to be proactively resilient? I know there's um, a lot of things that can be done. Unfortunately, there's no silver bullet or a straight clear answer to it. Uh, one thing you can do, but there's a lot of things that can be done in the farm business that can help uh, not to avoid disasters, but to help reduce the the damage from natural disasters. And it can uh, maybe help reduce the recovery time so the growers can get back on their feet a little bit faster and get into production and business uh, a bit quicker. Is there, you know, a plan or a recommended way toward better resilience that that, that Growcom um, is encouraging growers to to take up? Uh, Yeah, I like to to look at it as there's two sides to building resilience in the farm business. There's the physical side and that's your soil and your crop and your, your sheds and your office building, your machinery and all that. And then there's the, the business side of it, the planning, the finances, having a clear plan in place and, and talk to your, your staff and your family around what you want to do. If we go in and look at the physical side of it first, I think there's three sides to that. 
there's the there's all those things that we can call good practice that have a, a dual benefit. It will help you uh, have a better business and uh, growing your crop better, but it will also help you in in the natural disaster. We can take an example like um, cover cropping. It, it's uh, we like to call it king. Cover crop is the king. It's so essential to keeping your soil health good and to keeping your soil in place, and that's really important when you talk about especially floods and the big heavy rainfalls. So that's just one thing that is really just common good practice and it also helps you in, in these natural disasters and to build resilience to them. Another thing here is to to clean up around the farm, have it neat and tidy around your shed, trim branches that hang over your sheds and keep your gutters clean and things like that. And then you can also look at some practices that are more specific for uh, preparing and building resilience to a disaster. That could be things like if you have an orchard in northern Queensland, maybe you can put in a trellis system that can help uh, your trees when um, when you you have a cyclone three, four, or five, um, or category three, four, and five coming. That might help your trees uh, not break and they they will stand on the other side. There's also the last minute preparation, and here you really do need to do your homework and do some investigation beforehand. What are those things you can uh, you can do before uh, a cyclone or flood hits? If we take a cyclone as an example again, you can if you have an orchard, a mango orchard, there might be an opportunity to trim your trees really hard before a cyclone hits. That um, will help that the trees don't break down and fall over, and your recovery period after the cyclone will be a lot shorter. It can also be redesigning your your netting. So it uh, can let hail through and different things like that. So, but you need to do your uh, your homework here and and talk to some some experts, talk to your agronomist and some experts in your area and see what they recommend, and then make a plan for when you will put these practices in place and how to do them, and make a plan for also who are responsible for getting those things done before disaster hits. On the other side, I said there's the business and the planning and the finances and you need to to have some disaster preparedness plans in place and some recovery plans not all disasters are the same but we need a, a general plan for how we will go through that we need these plans need to be uh, developed with help from from experts again and you need to discuss it with your family and your staff and maybe your neighbors and colleagues to see if, if they make sense uh, in the if they are sound, these uh, plants. Then there's the finances, and I know that's really hard. And horticulture businesses, is a, it's hard making a profit, but it's good to have some uh, try and set some money aside to have a rainy day. And it's good to also look at, at finances to try and implement some of these practices that can help uh, build resilience. Lena, with your work in resilience, um, what what's kind of the best example or the best takeaway or the the best outcome that you have seen with the people that you've been working with, where you sort of look at the situation and go, that's a prime example of where a grower uh, is resilient and it's paid off. Yeah, I think we can take an example from the, the bushfire that uh, happened up in the Livingston Shire Council here in November 2019. And we got some growers that uh, 
were members of the rural fire brigade, uh, volunteer uh, working there, and they had gear on farm ready to go. So they had like a, a water tank on the back of a ute so they could go out and do spot spraying or, or spraying on spot fires. And they could, they were really well prepared and they actually avoided the damage uh, on their direct damage on their farm. I think we really need to um, to get growers into this mindset. And I think, I know it's really hard for growers. It takes time and it takes money, but um, they really need to take some time out of working in the business on a day-to-day -day basis and take time to plan for these um, potential disasters that can happen. If they do make a plan and if they really have the resources available to them, they can make a difference. Are there some key kind of indicators that um, growers can uh, think about to give them an idea of whether they are resilient enough or not or if they are as prepared uh, enough or not? I think it's about having those plans in place and having, I wouldn't say you need to have them put in writing to actually have a good plan in place, but it, it does help to have it in writing because if you just have it in your head, what happens if you are not there on the day of the disaster or you get sick, things like that. It's important to have it in writing so you can also remember it uh, when you are, are in, a, um, in a stressful situation. I like to, to ask the growers about what kind of plans they have in place, how often they review them and if they share them with and discuss them with their family and their staff and maybe their agronomist or other experts in the area. I know that we're talking a lot about plans now and, and you can't make one plan that can prepare you for, for all the disasters that uh, Queensland horticulture growers might face. Yeah, I think just going through that process of writing the plan will help you have a better mindset on how to deal with it. And you have to remember that these really severe disasters that we see in the cyclones, the big floods, they are leaving a lot of stress um, in the growers. It's their livelihood and their often their family home and have been um, damaged and the human mind is not very good at, at taking rational and good decisions while they are under stress so yeah I can't really put enough um, focus on writing that plan have it have it in place and, and try to follow it when when disaster strikes and I can't recall if it was one of the growers uh, that we've spoken to in preparation for this podcast or not, but I recall a grower saying to me, if your uh, plan has an element of uh, expecting someone else to come and help or external yeah. help that you haven't arranged, you know, if you're relying on the fact that either the government or the industry or the neighbour two doors down will come and help, then you're not prepared. Do you think no, that's true? That, that's that's a really good point. Uh, you cannot rely on anyone else coming to help you. You cannot even, uh, you have to build into your plan that your staff, they're likely living in the local area as well and their houses and family might be under threat as well. So you have to build into your plan to give them time off to go and prepare their own house and home. And yeah, you, you have to be able to manage those things um, on your own you can't expect someone to show up your doorstep and help you uh, fight a bushfire. And is there um, any assistance in forming these plans? If, if I, if for example, if I was a grower or any in any agricultural field and 
And I just kind of went, oh, I have never actually committed it to writing. I should do this, but I'm not great in the office. I'm better in the paddock. Yeah. Is there assistance or templates or, you know, how, how can someone who's not great at paperwork but um, but realises how important this is and realises it's important to get out of the house, uh, sorry, out of your head and, and down yeah. onto something that everyone can read? Does Growcom assist with that or do other, you know, is there some other way they can get assistance with that? Yeah, so... We have a lot of resources available on the GROCOM website. It's just growcom.com.au. And we have a new uh, learning platform called acrylearn.com.au where there's also some some resilience uh, courses on. That's just small videos um, that can help give some idea of how you build flood resilience, for example. So um, on the GROCOM website, there are some, some templates available to fill out these uh, resilience and disaster recovery plans and we have also we have developed some toolkits um, there's one for cyclone and floods and there's one for bushfires specifically and they are they're available in the online but they're also in in hard copy so if you would like a, a copy of them then just contact Growcom and we'll be able to to give you some of them and they're in them actually just a list of emergency contacts that you can fill out we've got recovery contact list uh, so you have your all the phone numbers you need in one place it has a emergency kit checklist and things like that it has a, a list for for things to remember when you go out in the recovery process and go out and assess the damage on your farm it has a list of things to remember things to look out for stuff like that so that some really useful tools that I will recommend growers uh, getting their hands on. So what have you taken from this two-part podcast? All our experts agree that there needs to be a focus on individual industries or doing or funding more research and development into disaster resilience. Building resilience, we've learned, is a multi-pronged approach with a lot of onus on individuals doing some groundwork on themselves and their farm or their plan in the lead-up to, during and after a disaster. And we also know now that natural disasters are going to become more intense and we may need to change how we produce food or even the areas in which we do to remain sustainable. If you've been really interested by this topic, there's another podcast we've done that you really should listen to. It's about insurance. It was one of our previous ones. Particularly listen to Kerry Battersby from the from the Queensland Farmers Federation talking about work that uh, the Queensland Farmers Federation is doing with the University of Southern Queensland on developing better insurance, more tailored insurance for primary producers. Well, that's it for this two-parter looking at resilience in the horticulture industry. Thanks very much to Jane Cudahy, my producer, also to Growcom, principal sponsor of this, this and the last two episodes. Also, our foundation sponsor, the Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland, and our current sponsor, the Rural Financial Counselling Service Network. Don't forget, if you like listening to our podcasts, please uh, like us on our social media channels or do a review for us. We'd love to hear from you. If you have an elephant in the paddock you'd like to pose, get in touch through our social media channels. Until the next episode, it's been great to be with you. 
producer Jane here. I just wanted to reiterate some of the resources that Lena mentioned, especially if you're thinking about how to build resilience in your business. Uh, you can head over to Growcom's website and check out case studies, videos and downloadable templates to help you prepare for natural disasters, extreme weather and, of course, to boost your resilience. It'll really help you be prepared, whatever the weather. Hi, my name is Steve Barnard. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at Growcom. Growcom is very proud to be associated with this podcast. Growcom is here for commercial horticulture growers, providing strong advocacy and a voice for the industry. We provide valuable services such as workplace relations and labour advice, information and updates. We provide resources and support for sustainable and ethical farm management practices through our key flagship programs such as Fair Farms, Port360 and InfoPest. We also provide fruit and vegetable market price information through our publication, Fruit and Vegetable News. We also support our industry in times of crisis, which can occur as a result of natural disasters such as floods, cyclones and bushfires. Delivering recovery programs which accelerate the industry in getting back on its feet so that they can be more prepared, resilient and get back to doing what they do best, growing premium fruit, vegetables, nuts and herbs. Being a member of Growcom means being part of a successful and exciting agriculture sector. Horticulture has a bright future in Queensland and we welcome commercial horticulture growers and producers to join us in this journey so that we can represent them as a state and at a national level in the best way possible. <laughs>